0: Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Leonard. I am the author of Visualizing Happiness in Every Area of Life and host of this podcast, Incredible Life Creator. And today, my guest is Stephen Cahan. Stephen Mark Cahan was successfully helped grow seven startup companies from early stage to going public or being sold, resulting in $5 billion in shareholder value. Stephen is the author of Amazon bestseller, Be a Startup Superstar. Stephen's newest book is called High Velocity Digital Marketing. He lives in Texas with his wife. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it looks like it's nice and sunny out there still, so it's beautiful.
1: It is a Where beautiful day in Sugarland, Texas.
0: Yes, yes. So just so people can get to know you, what I, I just read in your bio is like unbelievable for mo- many people to hear even, so... How did you start out? How did you get to this point in your life?
1: Well, if I go all the way back, I I found in in my life that the traditional path from school to climbing the corporate ladder uh, could not only be high risk for my career, it, it almost felt in some ways like a death trap. Mm. And um, what I mean by that is that I recall so many times Uh, when I was growing up, my father used to tell me, Steve, get your degree, go to work for a large corporation. If you work hard, they'll take care of you and and you'll have a great career. And so that was the path that I took. So I I went and I I got my degree. I went to work for a large corporation. And I recall one day about a year and a half in that I uh, opened up my bank statement and I was down to $50 in my bank account. I was staring at the pile of claims that I was supposed to process that day, wondering how on earth would I ever get ahead? And, uh, and for me, I, I, I was working long hours, but I just did not see that path forward. And the student loans used to eat up my paycheck before it ever even had a chance to hit my bank account. And so there was one day where I asked myself an important question, and that was, how could I earn a great living uh, doing the work that I truly loved? And just by searching for the answer to that question, it led me to my first startup, and I have never looked
0: back. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So, you know, when you say startup, I think of as a business person, That is probably the hardest place to be because at startup, no one wants to give you money. You have to figure it all out yourself. You have to actually prove the concept before people even talk to you. So what is it about startups that is so exciting?
1: Well, for me, when I say startup, and it's interesting because when I talk, I talk to a, a number of of young professionals, as, as well as uh, graduate students at a number of universities. And when you mention the word startup, the, the first uh, thing that comes to their mind is me starting up my own company. And actually what I did was I looked for uh, smaller startup companies uh, that, that had already uh, been established at least at some level. And so, like, you know, you can look at the United States Small Business Administration, and they'll say that it's a startup is a business that that has been around for under a year and in the formative stage. But I found that that actually is a a poor way of defining a startup. And the definition that I love is uh, from someone that I got a chance to know. His name is uh, Doug Irwin, who's chairman of a venture capital organization, and, and he defines a startup as uh, sort of the last frontier for outlaws. It's a, a place where nonconformists can live, create, and sell their ideas. And to me, it's like, how cool? Who doesn't want to be involved in that? A place where you sort of get to be the rough riding rebel running circles around the larger uh bureaucratic uh companies. And so it's really for me a startup is uh it's it's a mindset, it's a culture. It's typically a small team of crazies that are hell bent on changing the world. And it's that type of environment that was just super motivational for me and one that uh that entrepreneurs tend to thrive in.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you went to this first startup, what was your role there?
1: So, uh, first of all, I made the, the all the mistakes that, that I've learned over the years of how to pick startups. But one of the great uh, things about uh, about a, a startup, at least in my view, is that uh, you the barriers for advancement are few, and you're not in a small pigeonhole role. Now, certainly there's there's higher risk. In my case, I had the opportunity to follow my passion, which was moving into more of a marketing role. And what made it so great was that like I was the first and only person in marketing. Mm-hmm. And so what that really meant was, was that I got to sink my teeth into like, if it was going to get done, I had to do it. And so I got a chance not necessarily to be pigeonholed in a in a smaller function within marketing, but actually to go learn, to actually learn by doing in a variety of of uh, core marketing functions. And that really enabled me to build a depth of expertise just given the opportunity to 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 dig in and go, learn sort of by the trial and error approach but also being a little bit uh, uh sort of seeking to learn from great mentors or if i read articles about uh organizations and and other marketers at organizations that were achieving great results at least at that time now it w- at that time it was a little bit harder to get a hold of them you'd have to pick up the phone and call as opposed mm-hmm. to Maybe send them a, a LinkedIn uh, instant messenger, but I, I I try to learn from some of the best and the brightest, and and certainly when you do that uh, and take responsibility for for your own learning and and you are working with other like-minded entrepreneurs, it just gives you a a, a great chance to to uh, learn and grow and to do that very quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something that was going to be my next question. Mentors. Was there any certain mentors along the way that really helped you kind of hit those goals that you wanted to hit one specific person or many?
1: Yeah, many, many mentors. And what I found is that your mentors change as you grow within your career and your life changes because... Uh, a good mentor mentee relationship there's sort of give and take on both sides and both people actually learn and grow Mm -hmm. and so uh, I always went to seek uh, mentors who had achieved the type of success that I desired to achieve Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I learned uh, that I think a lot of people uh, don't do actually is uh, is to actually reach out to folks who who are maybe they've achieved great success, and and what I've found, and certainly how I feel, is that uh, that folks who have achieved great success, that have that have traveled down the roads that you want to travel, there they know that people helped them along the way. That rarely was it that they were good enough smart enough or what have you to have figured out everything on their own and i think that that people they really understand that and that they and certainly i feel this way oftentimes want to pay it forward mm-hmm. to others and so i would constantly seek out mentors and now i'm probably one giving maybe a little bit more mentorship than receiving Than receiving the from a mentor, but uh, but that has always been a key to to uh, to my success for sure. Mm
0: -hmm. And you know, we're talking about you starting out, but then now you brought something to you know market in billions. So how how do you know or do you know if your company is going to hit that high level? What are some of the signs that you're going in the right direction?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, when I took my first first startup role, honestly, I lucked out, right? And so I was the first person hired into marketing. And I'll never forget that on the very first day, I looked over outside of my cubicle and I saw some folks kind of taking the copy machine, putting it on a dolly and rolling it out of the office and i came to find out a few days later it was because the company couldn't afford to pay for that copy machine
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: and so i probably made a lot of mistakes but only a few years later that company went public right and i i got the bug but what i've learned was what you look for because if you are going to work for a startup or a smaller company uh there are senior executives at most of these companies that have great stories or they're good storytellers themselves mm-hmm. and so it's important to be able to separate those companies that have a good story versus those that have a good story as well as a great chance to succeed mm-hmm. and so here's what i look for the first thing that i look for is quality people that share the same values so uh and that is often overlooked right and so at so people reflect the company's culture. And if you don't think you could trust and respect and admire the people that you will be working with and for, you you really need to move to another option. And I look for, uh, for uh, managers, for leaders who really rock your world, right? And that's not just about like a mission statement. And it's really about um, people who uh, can not only you know you sort of talk with them and and you could see what their value system is but you know you could kind of learn that also by reading the blogs that they post mm-hmm. uh and 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 things that, that are online about them so i first i look for the quality people that share share similar values the second thing that i look for is a concept that fills a big market need right because here what you're really focused in on. And what I differentiate is that buyers oftentimes don't spend money on nice to solve problems. They spend money on must solve problems. So I try to make sure that the company is filling a massive market need in an area that if you're reading about it, that it's easy to draw the conclusion that they are focused on a problem that you need to solve. And when you look at a, a company with a big market need, I, I don't view it as like one, like if, if someone's telling you, gee, uh, you know, we have no competition, we're just better than all the rest. Like to me, that's a major red flag, right? I, I don't worry about the competition. I don't worry about big, tough competitors at all. I worry if they don't exist because that oftentimes is an indicator that there that there isn't a big market need. And you could find out, there's lots of analyst reports right online just simply by Googling. The third thing that I look for is a great product that I believe in. So I try to do my research and make sure that the ideal target customer of that uh, company's products, uh, that they believe in it, but also it does it pass the sniff test for me. Right. Is it something that I believe in um, Would I recommend or choose it myself and feel good about it? And at the end of the day, if you can't feel passionate for what the company does, whether it's a product or service and your role in creating it or marketing it or selling it or whatever it might be, uh, then if you can't get behind it with enthusiasm, I think it's something that you want to move on from. The next that I look for, particularly within a startup company, is that there's a role that I can fulfill and one where I could wear many hats. And that might sound obvious to some extent, um, but uh, really, what I look for is 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 not necessarily to settle and look for the easy roles. I look for the the roles that I feel that will fit me like a glove but will also stretch me in ways that might for some be a little bit uncomfortable right where you're you you're, you're actually you know it doesn't mean that uh that that you want to be applying for jobs for which you might not be qualified but it's really for uh, a role that you would have an opportunity to go learn some new things and to grow in new ways uh such that you're you're able to, to to build more and more expertise and knowledge and then finally I look for and this is particularly important of startups is that they're well funded and you know partly uh ask right and so uh right you could ask about the the companies funded uh well enough because what you want to make sure is is that you that there's proper runway Right that uh, that you're not just getting into something and even if it does seem to fill a big market need, but they don't have enough uh, money to fund operations and so. You want to make sure that they're properly capitalized uh, so that you have the best chance for growth, as well as stability, those are the things I look for and they've served me well.
0: Yeah, it sounds like they have. So I'm just curious, what are some of the services and products that you have um, marketed or companies so been I, involved in? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I, I uh, have primarily been within the technology sector, and in particular, uh, with an emphasis for most companies within cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. So cybersecurity, there are many, many different sectors of that, but certainly there are for the right sectors within cybersecurity, that's something you need to have. Right. Mm-hmm. And now not everybody does. <laughs> and not every company uh has has the right security or implements it in the right way and and might be at undue risk. But it, it's really been uh within within that area. And and as as a result of being able to pick those right companies within cybersecurity and working with a lot of great people, I, I, I have to say, is thats is that I've been fortunate to, to be able to do that. And even as I moved up the ladder, it's not just the great people that are there. It's really surrounding yourself with A-plus talent, mm-hmm. because not everybody is an expert at everything. And certainly, I know where my strengths and weaknesses are, right? And I try to always make an effort to surround myself with people smarter than me, people who had a depth of expertise within areas. I always felt very uh, confident when that was the case and not confident when it wasn't, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and so that that is, uh, I, I think, a, a, a real key as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, you're, you've been in the marketing space. I'm just curious, let's say you have a company that's not as well-funded as you would like it to have, can you take your marketing and get it to where it needs to be? Or is that just a losing battle?
1: No, I I think you can. And let me give you a practical example. So if you look at the last company that I was at, right? And so I'll just put it into perspective for you. So when I joined, uh, a venture capital company just had put an investment and the company was five million in annual revenue at that time, but it had two quarters in which revenue was flat. Right, so this this company that sort of had a, a a good potential for success, even the investors were getting a little nervous about about the situation. And so when I got in, I started to talk to the management team and and the founder and, and said, "Gee, well." tell me who, who are the customers? And again, this is a company that's that's 5 million in, in revenue. And they said, well, Steve, I mean, we're a cybersecurity company. I mean, you must know that we are selling to VPs of IT security or CISOs, chief information security officers. And I shook my head and, and, and heard that. But then I started to interview a number of the company's customers and i had my first aha moment and what it was was that that the the vps of it security wasn't the customer at all they were aware so what we did in that case we would secure what's known as privileged passwords these are passwords that exist on operating systems databases applications your infrastructure and if the bad people get a hold of that then they get the keys to the kingdom and so what what the company thought their customer was was really the 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 VPs of it security who were responsible for creating policy, making sure that uh, that their company complied with regulations that applied to them. But it, their customer actually was the it administrators, those techies in the trenches, mm-hmm. who also were who wore multiple hats who happened to also be responsible for security too, who wanted things different than the, than the VPs of security. For example, they wanted super easy, super fast, quick time to value, high flexibility. They were never gonna read an analyst report. They didn't even know who they were, but they would read reviews from their peers. They hung out at very specific places online. so. I bring that up because I really got a chance to understand who the customers were and and understand the full context of the buyer's world. Now imagine if I'm trying to market cost-effectively online and I would have been targeting who I was told to target, those VPs of IT security, I would have been at the wrong places, I would have been targeting with the wrong messages, And we would have lost big time. But because I knew who those customers were, I very cost effectively could go right to those proper places online, create the ideal content that would uh, that that they would covet and they'd actually give up their their contact information and think about what that means how often do you give up your name your your email address your phone number online if you're like me it's like never right right? so you only really do that like if you're super interested and so we had to have content that like totally resonated with those buyers such that it captured their imagination their attention and so because i really understood that Super well, I was able to create the right content, properly articulate the value of our differentiation in ways that that buyer uh, really resonated with them, and as a result, to uh, then digitally market online uh, at a at a very reasonable cost.
0: Yeah, and that is amazing. And what I'm hearing from that is sometimes you have to leave your office and go out into the field and see absolutely they're raising
1: their hand (laughs) yeah it's just so amazing how how infrequently that happens and now in the work at home sort of way of things it's even less frequent and 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 then a lot of times people don't ask the right questions Hmm. right and so when you're talking with customers what i find with a number of companies that i talk to is they ask questions in a way that, and they don't do it from a bad position, right? But they that sort of steer the, the customer or the prospective customer in ways in which they'll get answers that just so happen to align with the product that they sell. Mm-hmm. Rather than asking some questions that really help to inform them. Let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. So, one of the questions that people almost never ask that I always ask are questions around the status quo. Like, because a lot of times you don't lose business to a competitor, you lose business to the company or your buyer just thinking that, gee, what we're doing today is good enough, Mm -hmm. right? Like, why should I switch? Like, why should I buy your stuff? Uh, Things are okay, Mm -hmm. right? And so you really have to understand the status quo uh, and how it might not be sufficient and what are some of the challenges associated with that. And that understanding and asking some of those questions just on that category alone is something that most organizations don't do. Another one is like asking, they'll, a lot of companies will ask questions about the benefits that they uh, that they uh their target buyers might want to achieve Mm -hmm. but then they fail to ask the follow-up question which is so important so a benefit could be like saving time or something like that but what are the questions that you would ask that would help you to better understand the impact of that benefit and how big it is like the impact of a benefit of saving time might be, gee, I get to spend more time with my kids, or I get to work on more strategic projects, or uh, you know, I'm buying extra time so I can I can work out or 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 take vacations that I don't take enough of, right? And so these are just a few of the things that uh, that when you're trying to get to know who your customers are, just some tips that uh, that hopefully people can r- literally implement like tomorrow after listening to this that will help them to, to, to become better marketers and grow revenue quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because I find even in my profession, I'm an eye doctor, you know, one of the complaints people have when they come to me, if they've been somewhere else, they'll say, the doctor didn't listen to me. I was trying to tell him and they They didn't listen to me. They just already had in their mind what they were going to treat me with, what they were going to, you know, they already had their, their limited limiting treatment where they said, if they would just listen to me, I could tell them what it is I need.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, what's interesting is, is think about it in your own situation. Right. And so, um, Rarely do people want to do they care about how clever a company's marketing department is, right? They really <laughs> don't. What they care about is reading about how that company understands and empathizes with them that they it's like, gosh, these guys get it mm-hmm. right. And like if you could get that sort of response out of your ideal target uh, buyers, like that is really where you want to be which means that when you're interviewing your customers to learn how you can do that, that you're reflecting some of that language back at them, right? And so there's a whole method to, to doing that correctly, but it's, it's so key to, to being able to, to, to market effectively and ultimately accelerate revenue growth and do it on a sustainable basis.
0: That makes sense. I mean, everybody has their own language, if you will. So the the IT administrators probably had a totally different language than the VPs that you were talking to.
1: Absolutely. And then once you talk to them and you really understand them, I mean, I learned some interesting things. So, I mean, for example, uh, you know, we talk about or I mentioned like you know, none of us want to put out our information online unless we absolutely really want it, right? And, um, and so it's like, you've got to have content that people love, right? And so one of the things that I learned when I was interviewing these IT admins is that these they were starting to hear about like these privileged passwords that existed and that they were risky. But like a lot of organizations, they have very complex infrastructures, right? And big infrastructures. And so they have cloud, they have on-premise, right? And so if you ask them, well, like, how many of these privileged passwords does your company have? Like 100% of them said, you know, we we really have no idea. Mm -hmm. And so how could you manage and secure them if you don't even know what you have? And so in our paid for product, we had a discovery function where it went out and discovered. So I decided like, gee, you know what? We're gonna give that away for free. We're gonna, once someone gets that, we're gonna give them a beautiful report that says, here are these passwords that exist out there. Here's the risk that you actually have. If you wanna go, uh deal with it themselves here's what you would do and of course no company really manually wanted to solve for that Mm -hmm. right and then we would do things like based on that risk we would give them a grade like they were in university like (laughs) a through f right and so and it can't be like marketing bs like people sniff through that in a heartbeat it had to be real good methodology behind it so we'd give them a grade and then because we started to collect like, the geography they were in, the size of their company, their industry, then we were able to then uh, create these mini reports. So for example, we were able to do like the state of what was known as privilege access management, overall reports, or the state of privilege access management or privilege access security for financial services companies in the UK, as an example. So we were able to get very targeted. We were able to use that proprietary information in all of our social media and our blogs, in our webcasts. We were able to train our salespeople and our partners so that they didn't follow up and be like pushy salespeople. They were like, gee, so what grade did you get? How did you do Mm -hmm. right? And then we taught them how to bridge based on where the companies were having risk would you be interested in learning how we might be able to help you, right? And so it changed the whole dynamic of the relationship that we had. And and they viewed us as a real partner, but all of that would have never been possible had we had not really understood the buyers and actually started to give away some things that we actually were charging for.
0: Well, when you're talking about that, First of all, I'm thinking um, you demonstrated to them that you have the data, You that part makes you feel secure, but also you're going in empathetically saying, we want to help, but as you're talking, I was just feeling this feeling of safe, which is what you want with cybersecurity, you want safe. And it's like, that makes me feel safe that you have all the data, you know where the passwords are, you know how many there are, when they have all this unknown.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. And then, I mean, also, we knew our customers, we knew that they wanted simplicity, ease, quick value, right? And so uh, then we extended it to the next level. So, for example, our product documentation was like 25 pages. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't like reading the documentation, but we had it and it's 25 pages. And then our our like huge big competitor I did some googling and I found once they started seeing our simplicity message was really resonating. They started copying it and it's sort of you know it's on the one hand it's flattery but then, based on the Google research that I did I found out that their product documentation was like over 1500 pages. And I got with our sales force and our partners, and we started making a big deal about comparing their product documentation to the fourth largest novel ever written in human history, (laughs) which basically debunked all of their claims of simplicity and further extended our differentiation in in a meaningful way. Mm
0: -hmm. So another key point, differentiation. So that's part of what makes a company rise above the others.
1: Absolutely, it is. It is really the key, right? And there's multiple ways in which you can differentiate, but um, there's nothing worse than being a me too, right? And there are a number of ways to differentiate. I mean, you could differentiate on the basis of. Price. you could differentiate on the basis of service, you could differentiate on the base of ease of use, you could differentiate on the uh, basis of uh, the functionality that you have or some unique, unique component, but you've got to differentiate on the basis of something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right because me too is a path to being a low cost provider and few few uh, few folks uh, want to. To be uh, just bucketed in 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 that, and where the, where customers just can't tell the difference.
0: Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, then companies just like, okay, we got a sale, we got a customer, and then they just kind of leave them in the dust. How is how important is continuing education and and updating?
1: It's hugely important. So for us, first of all, it 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 directly tied to a number of things. So in, in our business we had, we wanted people to renew their subscriptions. And so if you weren't continually uh, communicating and you could communicate about a lot of things, like it could be some of the new functionality that you have out. It could be about some important new learning like uh, like what I had previously mentioned. It could be short videos that Um, You know what you find when you really know your customers is is that there's certain you know sort of what I call wow moments or like little things that they really value and they want to be able to accomplish and being able to give them bite sized videos that help them to understand how they can accomplish those wow moments, it could be growth in your own organization um, or. New customer wins or analyst reports or just other articles that were written that you feel that you're that your' um that your target buyers might be interested in, but the key is is building that relationship so that people subscribe so they continue to buy from you um uh that they buy more because your competitors aren't standing still they want to get. Their hands on on the customer, and so, you know, if you build that relationship, you're communicating with them. A lot of organizations have customer success departments that also sort of build on that and do that as well. Uh, then, then you you you're you're in good stead. But it's also listening, right? It's not just a one-way communication. It's providing ways in which customers can provide you feedback, and actually then demonstrating that you are listening to that feedback because sometimes even when companies ask for it they don't seem to act on it or or maybe they do but they sometimes need to remind their customers that they have right which is okay to do as well right and so um that uh communication and constant communication we we at our company we not only would communicate on a new stuff that would come out, but we literally mapped out a whole journey of communication that would occur uh, in particular during the first year, Mm -hmm. what that would be. I mean, some of it, we didn't know exactly what would be, but we literally mapped that out. and, And we knew that if our customers got value and loved us in the first year, it's not that we would stop doing that, but we wanted to go above and beyond to have a, a best-in-class retention rate, Mm -hmm. where actually it was over 100% because customers bought more, Mm -hmm. right? And so uh, that was something that we measured and always strived for.
0: So I have a question that's kind of uh, um, going in a little bit of a different direction. So the company you're talking about in many companies, very technical, you have to have highly skilled people doing the work. And what I'm seeing in my industry, which is the health industry, is a lot of big corporations who don't know anything about what the actual work is coming in and buying and rolling up office after office or company after company. And they don't really even know how to do the actual thing the company is doing, but they're rolling them up and trying to run them so what is your opinion on that? Do you think all the quality goes down when they do that or I,
1: I my sense is is that they strive to make sure that doesn't happen but like it almost always does, right? And so and it's part of the reason why um because they have their system, right? So they know that like if we make these purchases and you plug into that system, you know, here's how it's going to work and we can expect revenue to go like this and our profit to look like that. Right. And, and there's, uh, and that's why those types of acquisitions often look great in Excel, right. In an Excel spreadsheet. Right. But really what I found is, and I, and I've got firsthand experience from an early age. I mean, in, in my case, uh, my father was a pharmacist and had a corner drugstore for years and like those things don't exist anymore right and so, mm-hmm. like I saw how it happened like where the big companies came in and how like the world changed. Um, but what I found is that the, that there's also ways to differentiate versus those organizations, because a lot of those organizations seem like they're almost milk toast they're cookie cutter, they're not personal. Like, and it doesn't mean that they don't provide good service and so on. But I really feel that like organizations that could communicate out a personality that then often gets, and it may even be a little quirky. It may be something like super fun, Like, um, and but it can't just be the marketing communication. It's gotta be actually how, when you walk in the office, you know, or how people, it's almost like what people thought, and I think this is changing a little bit, uh, but like of Southwest Airlines in the day. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you board a plane and 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 the 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 people serving you didn't sound like United or American or and they acted differently and they almost sort of assumed like this personality. Uh, whether or not they actually had it, like they acted like they had it when you were on the plane anyways. And it, and that was part of their whole differentiation, right? And so I feel that, that, that it's natural where uh, when those roll-ups happen that you get subsumed by a larger corporation and that you lose some of the things that made that smaller environment special for sure right and it's it's natural right and and that's why a lot of people don't stick around those in those situations because they feel like it just isn't the way it used to be right Mm -hmm. and so um but i think uh even for those companies that still exist that i think southwest airlines that example provides a good clue right and by the way they're not necessarily the least expensive anymore You could look at, in some cases they are, but in other cases, you could could find some other competitive fairs. And so they've, but they've still got this aura of differentiation. And I think that that lesson of what they sort of showed the world could be, could be applied to those organizations that are even competing with those large uh, sort of, conglomerate Mm roll-ups
0: all right well thank you for answering that because i i was wondering how it all fit in there so now you have written a couple books why don't you tell us about your books and what they're about
1: sure so my first book which uh actually uh, was an amazon bestseller uh it's called be a startup superstar and really it was written for young professionals uh, uh, those early in their career or or really those uh, late in their college career. And it was all about why a startup over a large corporation, mm-hmm. uh, again, it went into much more depth of how you select a, a, a good startup versus a startup that has a great chance to succeed, where you might find those uh, startups. And then once you make a decision to actually join one, Uh, what I call uh, seven keys to the C-suite. So I went into 32 actions, attitudes, and behaviors that really focus in on once you're there, how do you achieve success, right? And so, uh, and this is based on my own personal experience as well as working with some very successful entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And then my second book, uh, High Velocity Digital Marketing, which I'm told by the publisher, uh, it actually debuts uh, December 6th, uh, and I'm told that it should launch on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. It's all about digital marketing, right? And, and the, the idea behind it is that there was a McKinsey study that said that, uh, that CEOs expect marketing to drive most of a company's growth. And yet the Harvard Business Review did a study that that most CEOs don't feel like they're getting a good return on their marketing investment. And then if you're actually responsible for marketing, you're in sales or marketing, a lot of times you feel overwhelmed by revenue expectations that like are really hard to meet. And so the whole concept behind high-velocity digital marketing is that buyers today are spending a very limited amount of time with salespeople just in terms of they'll they'll get with sales people but they want to do their research online so the way in which buyers now actually buy is that they rely on digital content and and think about it if you were going to go buy a car you probably are not looking forward to going to 10 different car dealers to meet which the sales reps to nothing against that but to meet with them to help them help you to figure out what car Mm -hmm. you're probably going to go do your research online Mm -hmm. you're going to go read reviews you might go build your own car and probably you're going to price it out Mm -hmm. right and then you're going to look at competitive cars right so you might know like as much as a lot of these sales reps Mm -hmm. before you even walk into a dealer and so the concept behind high velocity digital marketing is you got to be great online if you're going to grow revenue and really to do that, you got to deliver great content realize people scan quickly to make a decision and. Um, and the quicker you could convert your digital content into paying customers, the more successful your business and so. Uh, High-velocity digital marketing teaches you how to market online. It's not theoretical. It's how to and how to do it cost-effectively.
0: Wow! So are you talking about just websites? Are you talking about ads? All of it,
1: right? And so like even, you know, a lot of times, uh, even Google, right? A lot of people, like, they're like stumped how do I get great on Google? Like, why can't my rankings move up? Mm -hmm. And there's like three, 400 page books on that. Right. And so like, and like, nobody's going to read that unless you're like a SEO expert. Right. So like I, I talk about like things in plain English that people could actually learn and do. It might not change the game. Like in, in this particular example, Uh, day one, but it will put you on a path. We always punched far above our weight class on Google. And there was a whole method to the madness of how we did that. And I explain that in the book.
0: Okay. I have a more of a personal question. Do you have any um, practices you do or anything? We, you know, a lot of people talk about mindset or morning practices or you know, you seem like a really focused person. <laughs> so, is there anything you do that keep you centered or keep you focused? Uh
1: well, so I mean, just I am sort of I guess a little type A, right? Um but I'm also uh a pretty analytical person, like I'm someone who's definitely into the numbers and making decisions based on the metrics and the facts and and so on. And so for me uh uh just putting that as a backdrop but what what I have also learned is that I think a a couple of things one is that there's no substitute for hard work so there's one way to the top and that's with and through hard work I think that um that uh you know those who are persistent have great tenacity because there's gonna be bumps in the road right I mean constant and it it's it sucks i know i mean i have them myself all the time too but it's not being thrown by those it's it's you know realizing that um that those bumps are going to be out there and that you've got to be persistent and tenacious and keep your eye on the goal that you're trying to achieve but sort of it's doing that but also keeping this in mind and i'll mention this like for listeners like so a lot of people not everyone but if if anyone sort of lives their life through their online calendar a little bit like they book meetings or stuff like that it's like i, I challenge everyone right now who might be listening to go look at their own calendar and probably what you'll see is like a lot of non-stop meetings or a lot of a lot of stuff and what i've learned is that you really got to protect your calendar. And so given someone that myself that could easily be sucked into a lot of different things uh, and, and I enjoy it, right? Is that I've learned that you've got to block time in your calendar, which I do in advance for your family, uh, whether that's kids games, whether that's uh, being home for dinner or coming in a little bit later, being available for breakfast, or it could even be for time to think strategically. Mm -hmm. Like I read an article about Bill Gates, and and I remember him talking about how his calendar was like, like crazy nonstop back to back meetings every day. Mm -hmm. And he one of his big aha moments is when he befriended Warren Buffett and he saw Warren Buffett was the opposite. And what he started to learn was that, gee, I've got to start blocking time for myself, protecting my calendar, and and uh, and oftentimes that scheduling, like if you want to work out at lunch, block out time for lunch, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, it may be not realistic to. There may be times where you've got to violate that, and maybe you know, not being driving yourself crazy. Where if you if you did that, it's the end of the world. But I think that um, that while there's no substitute for hard work, uh, there's no, uh, no substitute as well for having some sort of work-life harmony. And I think that that is so important. And by protecting your calendar, Mm -hmm. you could do something proactive to actually go build the type of work life harmony that you're after.
0: Beautifully said. Thank you. So um, if people wanted to connect with you, where's the best way to connect and where can they find your books?
1: Uh, so my books are available wherever you buy books online, uh, Amazon in particular. Uh, uh, people could reach me in going to my website, which is beastartupsuperstar.com. And then oftentimes if it's, if it's uh, well-written and uh, that I, I also respond to LinkedIn Messenger.
0: Okay. Thank you. So now a personal question. What gives you the most happiness and fulfillment in your life at this point?
1: Oh, hands down. That's easy. Grandchildren.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And so that it's like, uh, it's the greatest gift any person can have, uh, is, is grand grandkids, uh, in, in, in just as good or if not better than your own children in that, it's like now you get a chance to even based on all the learnings that you've done to to be even better be even more present for them and uh, have fun and Mm
0: -hmm. and so
1: it grandchildren absolutely
0: beautiful well thank you so much for being on this interview today and for all your wisdom and it's been awesome
1: well again thank you for having me
0: yes yes i have one last question before we finish what is your best advice on living an incredible, amazing life?
1: My best advice beyond protecting your calendar, which a lot of organizations or a lot of people just don't do is, I think it's realizing that you have everything you need to achieve the success that you, that you desire to achieve. And I think that oftentimes what stops people is maybe a lack of confidence that they might not go take that risk Mm -hmm. or go try something new. And I would just, you know, be courageous, dare to take that risk, go try something new. Uh, You might be surprised that you'll find something that you absolutely love.
0: I love that. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. We'll talk to you again soon.